The utility of standardized testing is under debate in the U.S., with opponents of their use in K-12 suggesting educators are now being forced to teach to tests. In higher education, there's been a push to abandon the use of standardized tests in admissions processes, but if we throw out standardized tests completely, are we throwing away a tool that still has some value? That's a question framing this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as usual is regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Howard Wayner. Wayner is a statistician and research scientist with a specialization in the use of graphical methods for data analysis and communication, robust statistical methodology, and the development and application of generalizations of item response theory. After serving on the faculty of the University of Chicago at the Bureau of Social Science Research during the Carter administration and 21 years as principal research scientist in the Research Statistics Group at Educational Testing Service, he's now Distinguished Research Scientist at the National Board of Medical Examiners. Wainer's authored more than 20 books, the latest of which is Truth or Truthiness, Distinguishing Fact from Fiction by Learning to Think Like a Data Scientist. He also authored an essay in Chance, which questioned whether getting rid of standardized tests is a good idea. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank, thank you for having me. I, you know, to get started with this conversation, I wonder what made you feel like you had to write this essay about standardized tests. Oh, aside from having spent 40 years of my career working in standardized testing, it, it's it's like when somebody says in, untrue and rude things about a close friend, you feel that it's important to stand up for them. Uh, and so I did. And and I, I've started to do that. It's a mystery to me why large testing organizations like ETS and uh, ACT don't have a, a fair number of their staff members working away diligently, writing op-ed pieces and answering these various kinds of, cons- responding to the various kinds of concerns that are being expressed in the, in the, the, the public uh, media. So can, before uh, we but, dive in, into that, Howard, before we dive into sort of the, those concerns, if I could just get you to, to kind of, ex- to help deconstruct a little bit of this context to where we are. So we're talking about standardized tests. And if you could just give a, you know, a, a couple sentence summary of what, what the purposes of tests would be and sort of in the use that you've, you've worked, and then how, what does standardized mean in this context? Testing goes back a long way, a, a very long way, S- certainly to the Han Dynasty in China. So we're talking about thousands of years. And the key idea of a test is that a small sample of behavior taken under controlled circumstances uh, can predict future behavior of, of different sorts uh, under uncontrolled circumstances. And so when, when we give a test that takes two or three hours with, in which a person sits with a number two pencil, uh, we don't want to know how they're going to do with number two pencils in the future. We want to know how they're going to do at, at university or in licensing tests. Uh, we want to know how they're going to fly a plane or how they're going to uh, work as a physician. And the, 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 obviously, the, the, the closer the test is to the actual thing, the, the smaller the, the intellectual leap, 
but quite often you don't know what the thing is going to be. So you want something that's sort of general. That's, that's what a test is. It's a small sample of behavior taken under controlled circumstances. And the controlled circumstances is very important. That's where we get to, to the, other, the other part of your question in a standardized yeah. test. And the whole idea is that uh, everyone who's taking that particular test is subjected to it in precisely the same way or as, 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 as similar a way as you can possibly manage so that you know what you're talking about. If, if you can, if uh, some people take it with a book open in front of them and others take it without one, if some people take it in an hour and others take it in five hours, you know, some can bring their mother with them, you know, that's not standardized. And uh, so you want to be, you want to be able to control as much as you possibly can. Again, think a little bit about the, 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 the principal thing that I had that, that concerned me in all of the uh, public discussions about why they're not going to use, they, they stopped giving college entrance tests during COVID because you couldn't have a bunch of people gather in a gymnasium uh, all at once. And so I had to do something else. And uh, various opponents of testing, who are, there are always opponents. One of my colleagues says that testing uh, is a lot like a proctologist. You know, nobody really uh, likes them, but you got to have them. Uh, <laughs> and, and nobody likes tests. You know, but so so during during the time of COVID, they had to make do without them, and they tried all sorts of things. Uh, and then various organizations, you know, like the U University of California, have decided that they're going to try not having them anymore, and they're going to substitute something else. And that brings me to Henny Youngman. Henny Youngman is is famous for you know his one line quips. And he, one was uh, someone said, "How's your wife?" And he said, "Compared to what?" <laughs> and now, now, if you if when you start talking about tests. And you say, okay, we're going to do without tests. Okay, what are we going to do instead? Because you have to do something. Whenever you have to allocate resources in a limited way, and, re and, and limited resources means we have opening for 1,000 students and we have 10,000 who are applying. How do you pick? And uh, before there were tests, like the college entrance exams uh, began in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, and it worked its way in a little bit at a time. Uh, back then, it turned out that there was a guy named Henry Chauncey who was working in the admissions office at Harvard. And he was, a, he was a big fan of these admissions testing. Columbia had really pioneered. And so he went to the president of Harvard, Lowell, and said to him, we should do this because we have more people applying to Harvard than we have space and this will allow us to make better decisions. And Lowell turned him down flat uh, because he felt that test scores, if you use test scores, it wouldn't exclude enough Jews. And he preferred having he, he preferred having quotas. And President Lowell uh, had similar opinions about lots of other things. That, uh, mm -hmm. And in fact, just recently, by just recently, I mean within the last six months, uh, Lowell House at Harvard has been renamed. It only took 100 years, but they've <laughs> finally gotten rid of him. But that was the whole point. What was going on back then was, uh, was the old boy network. Both of you are too young to remember this, but when I applied to college, one of, the, one of the things you put on the application was a photograph of yourself. Guess what that was used for? Uh, and then that was subsequently, they got rid of it. And, and the, 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 the conditions for choosing people that, to, that got in is, is you would call your friends and ask if they had anybody good and it, 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 it resulted in, you know, really kind of dreadful kinds of segregation. And by, by segregation, I don't mean just racial segregation, but segregation of all sorts. However, as soon as you have a test, the game has changed. Now, that doesn't mean the test is completely flawless. 
it doesn't mean that at all. What it, but what you can do is because you're doing the same thing over and over again, you can control it. You can try doing it one way and doing it another and seeing uh, if you can fix it. And then you make a change. And there are gazillions of examples of uh, flaws in the SAT that were corrected and they don't do them anymore. Uh, I know the, the opponents of testing often point out uh, a vocabulary item that had the word chukka in it. Chukka is a period in a polo match. And you can imagine that there are a lot of people that don't know that. Uh, mm. and, and they, I had no clue. <laughs> chukka hasn't appeared uh, on an SAT probably in 70 years because they found it and they said, that's stupid, we're not gonna do that. And then there were you know, lots of other things that were done, uh, both to um, make them fairer and make them less offensive. So at one point, I, I, I think it was the term Eskimo was, was considered to be derogatory. And so they substituted in Inuit, which is the term. And, and I remember the first time they made that change, uh, the, the, the phrase that was used in the test, it was a reading comprehension thing, was the Eskimos, or Inuits, as they like to be called, they didn't, that disappeared quickly enough. But the point is, if you have a standardized test, you can, you can constantly improve things. Howard, you uh, raised this issue that admissions to college used to be, I was going to say kind of discriminatory, but I will say a lot of discriminatory. Discriminatory in what sense, please? Well, just, you know, where you said, like, you had to include a picture, right? So, like, people could sort of sift through and figure out, like, oh, we don't want that kind of person here. But there, and, and I and I think this argument about standardized tests sort of helping make those that admission process more objective is persuasive. But I do feel like there are criticisms from people in education who are concerned that standardized tests can sometimes sort of reinforce inequalities that have nothing to do with intelligence and everything to do about where a student is located. And I wonder if you have thoughts about sort of whether there's validity to those criticisms or whether there are ways that standardized tests can sort of take into account that kind of thing when they're being created. Because you just talked about how these change over time. Yeah, all right. Well, let's, let's, let's there's two parts to the answer. The first part is you're, you're absolutely right. There, there are biases that can happen. But let's think about what really happens. Uh, when someone takes the SAT, they walk into a big room uh, completely naked with just a number two pencil. There's nobody, you know, mom isn't behind them. Uh, their tutor isn't behind them. They, what, what, their performance is based strictly on how much they have absorbed. Now, yes, if you come from back in the, in the, in the hills of West Virginia in, in Appalachia or an inner city, you're not gonna be as well prepared as someone who's gone to prep school and all sorts of other things. Uh, that's certainly true. And there's no way around that because you know, it's, it's like saying, well, some people are taller than others. How are we going to make basketball fair? You know, that, that's just the way it is. But it is fairer. And uh, the, the, the thing that has been not discussed very much, and I think it's really important, is the power of, of tests, in particular, because they're cheap. They're cheap mm -hmm. to administer. You know, you're talking about a two or three hour test that's, that, that handles everything you've learned for the first 12 years of your education. Uh, they're cheap and they're easy. And it's a, it's a spectacularly good way of being able to find jewels hidden away in places that you'd never would have found them. So sure, it's easy to go to Lawrenceville Prep and find some terrific students, but what about the south side of Chicago? You know, you see this tall black girl with, uh, you know, overwhelming SAT scores. They accepted her at Princeton. Her name was Michelle Robinson and her, her brother went to Princeton ahead of her. Again, spectacular, and you know Michelle Robinson. Uh, mm -hmm. 
uh, or, or uh, Melody Hobson, you know, a, a black woman from from uh, Virginia who went to Princeton also. They found her a spectacular. She obviously, I mean, these are very, very smart people, right. uh, but they might not have been able to find them. They found them. And the the uh, the Merit Scholarship has known this for a gazillion years because they give the PSAT, which is dirt cheap. You take it for free and they give it to millions. And out of those millions, they find the 1500 highest scores and give them scholarships because they're able to go into all corners of, of the earth. Is it perfect? No, but it gets way better than anything else. Again, compared to what? What are you going to do otherwise? So one of the things that, that you mentioned is that, that you're, the definition that you gave earlier about the tests of the, the sample of behaviors under controlled circumstances that will predict behavior under, under uncontrolled conditions. So, if, you know, what are some of the when, – when you think about the standardized tests and when you, you, know, you talk about these, these, uh, these entrance exams for colleges or, or other types of exams or PSATs, as you just, you just mentioned, what, what, does these, what are the behaviors that typically these are calibrated to predict? Let me, let me shift your question. Uh, but, but, it, 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 but, you know, because basically what, you know, the SAT grew uh, from a test that was developed in 1918 uh, in Vineland, New Jersey, which became known as Army Alpha. Uh, it, it, uh, the, the Army was, try, was, was trying to make better decisions um, in terms of manpower utilization. And uh, the work of the Stanford Binet test was, was very influential. And so they developed... Uh, this test called the Army Alpha. Uh, actually, they had two forms: Army Alpha, which was a written test, and Army Beta, which was nonverbal, for mm -hmm. people who could who were illiterate. Uh, and it was to be, to be able to make better judgments about all the various enlistees and what they would, what kinds of training they would undergo. And it was so successful that it was then copied uh, by the College Board. And so the College Board test grew from that, which grew from an IQ test. So what we're measuring. To, to a large extent is intelligence. Now let me shift to a different kind of testing. You know, for, for 15 years I spent licensing physicians and the, the test that licenses physicians in the United States is called the, the USMLE, the United States Medical Licensing Exam. And everyone who practices medicine in this country, uh, whether uh, US trained or foreign trained, has to pass this. And it is the test from hell. Three eight hour sections, it goes on and on and on. And so let me get to your question, which was, how do we know that what's being tested there is going to produce a good doctor? Because that's what we care about. We want a good doctor. Well, you do the best you can in the topics. So you've got topics like anatomy and physiology and psychology and, again, three eight-hour tests. So this is a big deal, including one that, that's, that's clinical, where you have... Uh, what are called, they're, they're actors, they're called standardized patients. Huh. An actor who goes in and, you know, we're hiring you and you're going to be uh, the SP, the standardized patient, and, and, and you're going to represent urinary tract infection. So you sit in the room and a candidate comes in and you describe all of your symptoms and they poke around and then they have to do something. I mean, this is a serious thing. Yeah, yeah. However, in the end, the only thing we can be sure of is that we're helping to pick out who are going to be smart doctors. We don't know if they're going to be good doctors. We just hope that there's a strong relationship between being a smart doctor and being a good doctor. And we're pretty sure, but there's no evidence necessarily, that a stupid doctor is not going to be a good doctor. So we, got some, we, we, have, we have some support for that. 
and there's been attempts to try to determine uh, how good, you know, whether being a smart doctor is a good predictor of who's going to be a good doctor and how good is, is that. Uh, but you can certainly imagine other, other characteristics of, of a person that are not measured by the test. There's a, a famous case of all the various things that went into getting somebody admitted to medical school, their undergraduate grades and their MCAT scores and things like that. Uh, and there was this one guy who was a professor at, at a medical school, an old guy, and he felt that, that these all the various criteria that were being used didn't really get at three important variables, in particular maturity, commitment to medicine, and neuroticism. Uh, and so he was going to uh, personally interview all of the finalists for admission and evaluate them on those three different variables. And I won't go through the whole story about how this was discovered, but it turned out if you were a man and married, you were considered mature. If you were a woman and married, you weren't committed to medicine. If you were a man and divorced, you were considered committed to medicine. And a woman and divorced, you were considered neurotic. And so the particular medical school he was dealing with tended to vastly, vastly uh, over-admit men uh, over women. And they only discovered this when the state that it was in uh, allocated extra money for more students. And they had a lot of women in the wait list. And they were very concerned that these, how were they going to do because they weren't good enough to get in initially. And they followed them. And of course, they blew the top off the class. Now, that's an unstandardized test. And it sounds good. It's one of these ideas that only makes sense if you say it fast. Uh, <laughs> physicists call it a Doppler effect. That is, ideas that come fast <laughs> only make sense to dummies. You're listening to Stats and Stories. And today we're talking about standardized tests with Howard Weiner. So, uh, you know, Howard, you're, I, I, have, uh, I have enjoyed your, your work. I've enjoyed, you know, and actually anybody that calls a book Truth and Truthiness has all right by me as a starting place. That was a, a great title. You've, you've written recently an art, uh, a book with a colleague um, on, on the history of some data visualization. You've been writing, and you said for 32 years, a column on, on these visual revelations. I, I was just curious, how did you get started in, in kind of data viz and, and, and your interest in the history and exploring the history of visualization? Well, it's, it's, it started uh, when I was a student. The history of statistics in the world really peaked at around 1961 or so. And, and, and up until that point, statistics was, was filled with formalisms. And, that, and the names of Fisher and, and, uh, and Neyman and Pearson uh, dominate. And, and, it, and it was a branch of mathematics. But in, in 1962, uh, John Tukey changed the, the, the rules of the game uh, at Princeton. And he wrote this wonderful paper on the future of data analysis, uh, where he said that the, the, the goal of looking, of, 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 of looking at data uh, is insight, not equations. Mm -hmm. and, and the greatest value is when you find something that you weren't expecting. And so I showed up at Princeton in 1965, and Tukey's work was, was just sort of starting to have its influence. And, and it just it made so much sense to me. Also, I had, I had some colleagues in the math department who were so much better than I was that I knew I wasn't going to be able to compete with them. And so this, this, this looked like a way of doing it. Tukey, of course, was uh, in, in some sense a terrible model because you couldn't possibly model yourself after him because uh, he knew everything. I mean, he was, he was smarter than anyone you could ever imagine, and he knew everything. There's this wonderful story about, because he used to get annoyed if people, at people asking him ridiculous questions 
to see whether he knew it, as he always did. And so the story went that if you want to learn, if you want to find out how to milk an elephant, don't ask John. Just go in and start talking about elephants, and eventually it'll get around to how to milk them, and he'll tell you. <laughs> okay, so, so so it was the so this is this uh, the emergence of EDA and some of the insights that that Tiki, that's right. That, and, and in fact, I, I I John McCarthy at Yale and I at Chicago were the, taught the first two courses in EDA uh, outside of Princeton and Harvard. I guess uh, Mostella was doing it at Harvard, and and. Uh, it, it didn't meet, at least my course, didn't meet with great success because the students that I had didn't understand this stuff. They want to know about chi-square and analysis of variance and regression. And what's this stuff about, you know, all the stuff you're doing? So it met with, with enormous resistance. Fred and John uh, had an, uh, a symposium at AAAS, and they asked McCarthy, John McCarthy and I to go and talk about our experiences in teaching EDA. And that, that led to graphics and things like that. My first graphics paper was was, was part of that. Yeah, so so that's that's exploratory data analysis, Rosemary. Sorry, sorry for Thank that. Thank you. That, that was an inside sorry. baseball sorry. reference that I realized after I had, I had shared it. So. I haven't heard that term since I took a statistics class in graduate school. So. Uh, and I did you hear it in that course? Uh, yes. Oh, all right. Yes. Well, that's good. But I, I did, I, you know, I'd finished my graduate work in 2007, so... Um, I think they were just data visualizations were just becoming a, a big a big thing for in my program. I wonder what what advice would you have, Howard, for people who are interested in exploring, you know, data analysis and data viz as a career? Because I would imagine that you've really seen an evolution um, in the field given given your experience. Wow, uh, you know, the obvious the obvious advice is buy as many of my books as you can. <laughs> Maybe we should start saying that on this podcast as well, John. <laughs> That's great. But um, it doesn't matter uh, what subject you're in. If, if, if you're interested in any subject in which you're going to make claims, in, in, if you're going to make a claim, it, needs, it means you need evidence to support those claims, whether that's in a, in a, in a, a court of law or in a, in a uh, scientific circumstance or anything else. Now, now what, what's, what's evidence? Uh, that's, that's, you know, there, there's been a long history of that, you know, certainly starting with Aristotle, but it really got rolling s somewhere around Hume, uh, where evidence was considered to be experiential, you, as opposed to, uh, you know, the Socratic idea of sitting back and, and fig figuring it out rationally. So evidence is, is, is data, but it's not any data. Uh, evidence is data related to a claim. And so Data by themselves, you know, I, 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 you know, your your shoe size is data, but that doesn't mean anything unless I, there's some claim in which the shoe size met, has has is is supportive or an, antithetical to whatever the claim is. Uh, so any field that anybody's going into, if they're interested in making causal inferences and making claims and trying to gather evidence for an audience of people for whom evidence matters. Now we live in a world now where there's a lot of people for whom evidence doesn't matter. Witness all the people who don't want to have uh, a COVID shot or who don't want to have standardized testing. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was a great pleasure to have met you both. Well, thanks, Howard. It was, it was great. Thank you for joining us.
Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.